2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 15. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good afternoon, Storehouse family. I hope that you are doing well and experiencing the grace of God as you continue to worship through song, prayer, and now the preached word. Before your preacher for this afternoon comes up, I just want to give you a couple of things. The first one is a big thank you to Alan Morales, who helped preach these last two weeks through 2 Thessalonians. Alan, in case you didn't get to meet him, uh, serves as one of our writers and teachers here at Storehouse McAllen and he did an exceptional job preaching faithfully on the Word of God through 2 Thessalonians. The second thing that I want to share with you is another thank you to, to you. Uh, I was so encouraged and edified by you as y'all prayed over uh, my son last week and my family. My wife and I are, are out taking him to college right now and so continue to pray for us. But, uh, but in addition to that, I just want to say thank you so much for your prayers and your encouragement over the last couple of weeks. Uh, it has truly blessed us uh, significantly. And uh, the third thing is now to that effect, I want to introduce your next preacher. This is Tony Garcia. Tony serves as one of our pastoral candidates. He does a lot of behind the scenes work, serves our church faithfully, loves the Lord dearly, and will continue to preach through and close our series on 2 Thessalonians. So to that, please welcome Tony Garcia. <clears throat> All right, then. I was not expecting an introduction. I was like, man, I think we, we were already past that, but uh, here we are. And uh, I am your preacher for the next two weeks, and it is a pleasure and an honor to be here with you guys uh, sharing God's word. So as some of y'all uh, might have heard, my name is Tony Garcia. I serve as one of the uh, pastoral residents here at Storehouse McAllen. Um, if you are new to Storehouse or you're joining us for the first or second time, thank you so much for being here. Uh, we're glad to have you. Uh, we have a couple of Connect cards that you can find either on the pews. If not, then over there in the back uh, on the Connect desk in the front entrance. Uh, fill one of those out. We'd love to connect with you. We'd love to get to know you, answer some questions, take you out for coffee, whatever it is that you may need and that we could serve you in. Uh, please feel free to drop that off in the back. Uh, second, we also have some Bibles there in the pews, y'all. If you don't have a Bible, we love God's Word. We love teaching from God's Word, and we want to give you God's Word. So if you don't have one, or if you know somebody who may benefit from having one, please take it. It's our gift to you uh, from us. And then... Uh, Lastly, if you guys did not hear uh, our brother Chewy, we were going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 to 15. And so I think this is going to be the biggest chunk of scripture that I've preached thus far. And so it was slightly intimidating, but I'm going to do my best not to keep you guys here past the hour and a half. Just kidding. Uh, but, but yeah, so with that, I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then we'll, get, uh, we'll jump right into it, given that we have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, and so it says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we don't have that right, 
but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we have said in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Let us pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing and the privilege that it is to gather as your people here before your throne at this moment, Lord, and to sing praises to you, to worship you, and at this moment, Lord, to be able to hear your voice, Lord, and through your word. I ask, Lord, that you work in our hearts, Holy Spirit. I pray that, uh, that you speak to us and that you convict us, Lord, and that you draw us nearer to you, that we may, close, that we may draw closer into conformity into the image of your Son. Um, I pray that your word, land, and soil, Lord, that it may bear much fruit after this. Thank you so much, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if, you, if it's your first time visiting us here or if it's just your second time, we have been going through the second letter of the Thessalonians, and so a lot has been covered, and uh, it is gonna be my task to close us off. Uh, it's funny, because I told Mark, I was like, hey man, I have trouble sometimes just, you know, landing the plane, as we say. He's like, well, you're gonna land the plane on this one. So, uh, so I'm gonna do my best. Obviously, we're gonna be two weeks, but we've, grow, we've, we've covered a lot of ground thus far in the second letter. And just to give you guys a little bit of a run-through, Paul has addressed a lot of things in this letter. Uh, the first one was obviously he wanted to continue to encourage and affirm these believers um, to the witnessing that they were to the rest of those around them, whether it be other cities or whether it just be to one another regarding their love and faith. Second, he went ahead and addressed the judgment and the second coming of the Lord. During this time, obviously, there was false teaching creeping into the church or individuals making false claims that Paul did not make regarding the second coming uh, and the judgment that was to happen. And so Paul goes ahead and addresses it for the sake of them not living in fear, but in confidence to this day. Third, he goes on to also address the end days in terms of who it involves, in this case, being the man of lawlessness. If you missed that, I definitely encourage you to visit our, uh, our previous sermons so that you can grow in that eschatology, which is really important to our practicality and how we continue to live today as we await the Lord's return. And then as Alan did such a good job these past two weeks is that Paul goes on to basically wrap it up in the sense of where he then lets them know that any trial, suffering, any tribulation in which they may find themselves in, they can be assured that they can stand firm on the foundation of God's love for them and the steadfastness of Christ or the faithfulness of Christ in them. And now, as if like Paul was like, oh, wait, 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 before I forget, right? Because it's like, this is already at the end of the letter. He's like, before I forget, let me go ahead and just address one last thing that I need you guys to know. And so here he's gonna be addressing the, the, the issue of idleness. Church, there's a reason why Paul has to make his way around this particular issue. Again, in this letter, he addresses it briefly in 1 Thessalonians, right? And he lets them know about this matter, but then here he is again. And although he's been doing an excellent job in encouraging, affirming, caring, reminding, and even teaching these Christians who are fairly new in their walk with the Lord, he wanted to ensure that they were maturing in the gospel and what it calls them to live like. Because this is more than just abstaining from things, it's living a life for someone and something. It's important to note that the matter of idleness in the church is more than someone just being lazy. It's about how one who calls themselves a member of God's kingdom, and yet, because of their idleness, works against it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul states this, For we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you to his kingdom and glory. So this is your main idea for today. A life of idleness works against rather than for the kingdom of God and its people. Again, 
A life of idleness works against rather than for the kingdom of God and its people. Paul, with the same intentions in 1 Thessalonians, when he first mentioned this, is going to be the same thing that he's going to be doing in exhorting these idle brothers and encouraging the faithful ones so that they may walk in a manner worthy of God who calls them to his kingdom and glory. So the first point that we have today, which we'll be covering the verses 6 to 9, is a working example. It's interesting because Paul obviously starts with a command when he says, now we command you, brothers. If we rewind a bit or we just move a couple of verses back, in verse 4 he says how confident he is that they're doing what he has commanded and that they will do what he commands. And Paul hears now saying, well, this is what I'm going to command you guys to do. So Paul opens up with the command, and we see that he opens up stern. He says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. This word command is a strong verb. In the Greek, it's meant to use to make an announcement about something that needs to be done or giving orders, commanding or instructing or directing on what needs to be done. This is not option. This is not Paul's preference on the fact that, oh, this is what I think you guys should do. No, no, this is what they need to do. And who are they? Who are these brothers right here? Obviously the faithful ones in whom he's writing to, in which he will also be addressing directly the brothers who are walking in idleness. The command is coming from the authority of Christ. So this is severe in terms of the importance and the seriousness of the matter of idleness. Because he's now saying, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Due to the continued disobedience, Paul is now having to say, all right, y'all made me say it. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command you, like, you need to do this. Like, this is something that's coming straight from Christ in regards to this uh, instruction. And, that, and what was that that he was commanding them? to keep away from these individuals who are walking, literally to have nothing to do with them, as we will see, which is a pretty stern command. Imagine us knowing about a brother who's walking in idleness, and then Paul says, like, hey, you need to just not deal with it. That's, that's a little bit, especially if you have a relationship with this person, or especially if you've done your best to, to foster some type, it will be hard. It's easier said than done, well, at least for some of us, right? Paul had already warned these Thessalonians you know, to warn these people who were walking in idleness back in the first letter. And now, here he is again having to address it. Paul was strong in this exhortation because the idleness that was happening in this church had, a direct, had direct repercussions on the people of God and on the continued expansion of the gospel that they, uh, to those who were around them. The continued disobedience of these individuals led Paul to command those walking faithfully to exercise church discipline. We see a similar command from Paul to the Corinthians when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or a swindler, not even eat with such a one. The problem of idleness with some in the church wasn't that they were struggling to just get up and do stuff. That wasn't it. It wasn't like, oh man, they're just, have, they're just struggling or they, they're falling into this from time to time. No, no, Paul was literally saying that these people were walking in idleness. And the word walking implies to a style of life, which means that these individuals had made idleness their lifestyle, embracing the refusal to work and to provide for themselves or as we will see later, making themselves busybodies. We'll expand a little bit more on idleness on our second point. So, but I want to continue on with this command because of how serious it is. Paul, for the majority of this letter, has been encouraging, has been uh, correcting, but nothing like in terms of he is exhorting and commanding this particular matter to be corrected. Paul finds the disobedience and the rebellious attitude of these believers who are walking in idleness to be in complete contradiction to what God had taught them and to what they themselves had come to participate in. It's like, you're not dumb. Like, you know exactly why, because people, one, you're, you're, you're mooching off or you, you've already seen what it looks like for us to live in this way. And then two, 
Like, like this isn't something new. Like, we've already told you this. And this is why Paul moves on to remind them of the example that he left and that he gave them and that they were witnesses to, in which now they're refusing to accept that witness or example, uh, into which how him and the other apostles, when they first came to them, they themselves worked in order for them to be an example to these believers. Our second point on this uh, major point in terms of an example to work is that in verses seven to nine, we see Paul's example. So what does it look like? What's the opposite of idleness in this particular case? And it says, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we work night and day that we might not be burdened to any of you. It was not because we don't have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Paul goes on to say that these individuals know how they ought to have been dealing with idleness or in this case, work in itself and what they were to imitate when it came to this principle or this task. They weren't, again, they, they, they weren't ignorant to the matter. They weren't new to the matter. Not only did Paul command it in the first letter, but he's like, this is literally, like, I left you without an excuse because I did it. We did it. We showed you. You were there. You were like, oh, that's how you do that. You were literally there. And now you're saying, oh, no, I don't know about the fact of that we should be working. So during this time, obviously, there was individuals who were circulating the church who were saying, who were either trying to contradict Paul's commands or were trying to impersonate his commands and basically instructing the church to do the opposite of which that that they know. And he said, even if they were doing that, you saw us face to face, you know what we say of this, not because we did such a great job of going through a six week course on work, but because you saw us work. And in this is why Paul goes on to let them know about this example. He says, you know how you ought to have imitated us. Because he himself, again, he left them this example because he himself imitates Christ. Paul isn't the main imitator here. He has done what it is that he has seen Christ do or what he has been shown by Christ himself. As it says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Church, we see that the type of work that Paul imitated wasn't Bible reading, wasn't teaching, wasn't meditation, but plain out manual labor to meet one's basic needs. Paul was working around the clock, day and night, so that they know the truth of work and how one ought to not burden another when they can 100% provide and meet their own needs. But also, to show him that his priority wasn't even that the church met his physical needs. Even though he had the right to, he was like, no, my, his priority was that they come to know the truth of the gospel. We don't have to hyper-spiritualize work for us to be faithful in understanding the role it plays in our own personal lives as Christians and in the kingdom of God. Does this mean that everyone will have like a trade job? No, but this does mean that we will have to work to provide for yourselves and your family through your toil and through your labor. You don't have to be swinging hammers outside to know what it means to toil and labor for the sake of provision. The main key here was that Paul didn't want to give anyone a reason to question his motives, and second, to even use his own rights, which he were reserved for him as an apostle, to justify one's own reason to not work. Because he could have easily gone and said, well, we saw Paul not work when he was here. And Paul was like, to, even though I have that right to leave you without excuse, we didn't exercise that right. And that example that they were left with was done intentionally because some of these Christians, again, they, they, they were in Thessalonica, which was a Greek city, and they were exposed to Greek ideologies. Some of the ideologies that these believers could have been exposed to was the concept and principle of work. Some of them were taught that it was a curse from the gods to humans. Or, in this case, exposed to other teachings regarding the actual legitimacy of work. But the truth is that it couldn't be further from the truth. That the fact that God, the creator of the universe, says about work is completely contrary to what they could have, you know, 
in this case, formalized or formed in their own minds about what they thought of it because God himself is a worker, y'all. There is no greater example about this given to us than by the Lord Jesus Christ himself and that the work that it was done through his life, death, and resurrection to redeem and to bring about salvation for many, God didn't step away from his creation or leave it unattended or became idle in the work of redemption. No, rather God through his sovereign providence and loving work sent his son, Jesus Christ, to do what you and I could never work for or could ever bring ourselves to accomplish. That is, live the life we could not and die the death that we had to pay. Praise be to God because we serve a God who is a worker. That he is an intentional worker and he is a purposeful worker and that all that he starts, he finishes. For Paul says in Philippians, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is out of this reality, church, that we work. It was out of this reality that Paul left him this example. Paul wasn't like, ah, I think you guys would benefit from learning how to do some work. No, no, no. Paul knew the essentialness and the vitalness and, and the role that it played as humans, as image bearers, in God's created order. And we see this from the start of creation. Again, God made man to work, not as a curse, but as his calling and participation in the joy of work to that which God has entrusted him in his life. For we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. As we see, Adam was called to work the garden, not stand around and wait till one of the animals tended it, produced fruit for it, and then gave it to him. No, the man was never created to be idle, nor exempt from carrying out his God-given dignity when cultivating and working the ground for the sake of provision and stewardship. Those who are able to work in themselves, because obviously there's circumstances and there's certain exceptions to this, but those, these, these weren't those individuals. These were individuals who could 100% capable, able, unrestricted, and yet said no. And a part of that work, some of y'all may say, well, tell me, I don't struggle with work, man. I'm busting my butt. You know, you don't understand the times of the day that I get back home. I'm trying to provide. Great, awesome, praise be to God. But that work also includes that here in the church. Part of your work involves the church. Church is not just a place to be served. It's a people to care for. Everyone should be shouldering weekly kingdom responsibilities. That's what Paul is trying, this is why this is such a big deal because it's working against the kingdom of God. That's because church is not just a place to come take, it's a place to give. Church is not a place where we all, where we all work, uh, we just work out the, we, uh, all those who work in the church are basically people who we hire or who are those who are committed or called or have some spiritual uh, conviction of their, their role in it. No, 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 we are all responsible for the church. We all have vested interest in it, I would hope. We all have gifts and resources and abilities that God has given us, and it is bad stewardship and borderline idleness to not use those assets God has given us for the betterment and the expansion of his kingdom. Paul closes this portion of his example to those believers by clarifying why they participated in working and meeting their own needs. In verse 9 it says, it was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Notice that in verse nine, Paul does not say that all apostles or Christian workers should support themselves. Let's not overinterpret this because it could be really easy to be like, well, man, like, hey, that person's not working or that person's not doing this type of work. It will be real easy to try to um, overinterpret this and single out individuals who do different types of work that may not be considered in the eyes of others as laborers 
he goes on to say, he's like, we did this not because we want to have, uh, not because we don't have the right to such help, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. His purpose was to give these believers an example or model of hard work, not to set any precedent for all Christian workers. How do we know this? Because Paul literally, to the Corinthians, is literally given an example about the fact of how he should be supported by them. And why? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 4 It says this, don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a uh, believing wife along with us as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? If all others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have all that the more? But we do not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. So Paul's saying, hey, no, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be getting paid. We should, we should be getting compensated just like everybody else. Everybody else does this work too. However, we don't for the sake of not being a hindrance to the gospel. Work isn't something that is optional, but that which we are called to fulfill and walk in, in this redeem, as redeemed image bearers of Christ for both our provision of earthly means and our participation in the heavenly ones. Paul continues now by directly exhorting those who are walking in idleness and by letting them know what the outcomes would be if they continued in such manner. Verses 10 to 12 say, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul starts by stating what he commands the fruit of one's idleness to really be. These idle brothers were walking around the church, they were walking around amongst the community, doing all sorts of things, shenanigans, and expecting to be provided for. They literally thought that the fruit of their work, or in this case, their idleness, could earn them and entitle them to the benefit and provision of their needs. Paul is basically saying that, well, they are commanding, and along he says, like, we gave you this command when we were with you. He's like, we're not just trying to like, oh, now Paul's saying something, now that he's writing this letter and he's over there in Corinth and while we're over here, now he says, no, 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 we literally told you this when we were with you. So the thing that we're exhorting you at this point that's gonna happen if you continue this idleness is the very thing that we would have told you when we saw you face to face. And what is that? What is the outcome? What is the fruit of one's idleness? Let him not eat. That's a pretty stern, pretty stern command. But we see how this is an actual, this, this, this falls in line perfectly with what Proverbs chapter 21, verse 25 says, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. These individuals wanted to have their needs met while explicitly refusing to work when being 100% capable of doing so. Paul gives them such a stern response to these brothers because willful life of idleness, brothers, dismisses the grace of God for them when they could provide for themselves while selfishly using the people of God for their own comfort. Paul continues in verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. So what is this idleness that these brothers are walking in? Well, it's easy to want to take this word and immediately think it's like, oh man, these people were lazy. They were just playing out, just chilling out there out in the streets, in the street corners, just waiting, hearing, talking, chatting, and then saying, oh man, I think, think so-and-so is having dinner. Let's go head out. No, although that could have been some of that, the idleness that was happening here had to deal more with what they were and were not doing in terms of actual work. The Greek word here for idle means literally to be disordered or unruly. It means to be in a state of disorder and chaos. It means that these individuals were involving themselves in the wrong kinds of work, such as avoiding and refusing to actually do type of work that brings about provision. Rather, they involved themselves in useless matters. That's why Paul states to Timothy when he's addressing issues that were happening in Ephesus about some of the things that were happening with some of the brothers in that church. But even then, Paul would even go on to say, he's like, you're literally doing the total opposite of what it is that I had told you in the first letter. And what was that? 
was that he says, and aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and depend on no one. Paul's literally like, bro, you're doing the opposite of that. It's like you literally heard what I told you and you're like saying, nah. Uh, and said, we'll do the opposite. We actually won't live quietly. We actually won't mind our affairs. We actually won't work with our own hands. We'll actually use somebody else's work to maintain my life. And people are seeing this. Rather than becoming independent, they became even far more dependent. These individuals weren't living properly. They weren't living free of dependence on others. On the contrary, their idleness, was nothing but a display of the unruliness in their lives and that of their households. You can tell why some of this is such a big deal because again, this is creating chaos. I mean, some of the Thessalonians during this time were already going through things and here are these brothers who are like, man, come on, dude. Don't you see you struggling already? It's like, I'm already on the floor and you're kicking me because of this disobedience and this idleness in which it is that you're continuously involving yourself. And it's funny because then Paul goes on to say that some of y'all have been Busybody, not busy at work, but busybodies. In this verse, the Greek word is meant to be intrusively busy. Being a busybody or a meddler, a theologian defines it as to bustle about uselessly, to busy oneself about trifling, needless, useless matters. That's what they were doing. They weren't sitting on the couch. They were actually off the couch doing things that were far worse if they were just sitting on the couch. Instead of these individuals looking for those to provide for their families, looking for ways to try to get a job, looking for ways to how, how can I help in participating in the expansion of the gospel through my generosity? No. Rather than say, oh man, there's literally a person who was, one of the brothers is actually disabled and one of the brothers actually cannot work and one of the brothers is actually struggling with poverty. Rather than helping that, he's like, no, no, man, I'm, I need that help too. And that brother's like, oh, really? Uh, in this case, instead of doing any of that, instead of providing for their families or instead of helping advance the gospel through generosity, they were preoccupying themselves with matters that weren't beneficial to their provision of their needs and nor were they in the participation of generosity for the gospel. Paul addresses a similar matter when writing to Timothy, like I said. He told some of the widows who were becoming idlers, who were depending too much on the church when they could more than actually provide was that besides that they learned to be idlers going about from house to house not only idlers but also gossipers and busybodies saying what they should not you see idleness was more than mere laziness it was a complete disorientation of their priorities and how that reflected towards their work the the idleness here burdened and strained the church disregarding the church's witness and rejecting God's command and purpose for work. Y'all, idleness is serious, and Paul is taking it serious because it has repercussions to the church and to those who are witnessing of the church. And it says a lot about you as well. This is because idleness makes much of one's own will while making very little of God's. Secondly here, in verses 12, we see what Paul says. If you are to work, this is what you can expect to gain. Despite all the direct and stern exhortations, Paul has still given and is still persisting on pursuing these individuals by encouraging them to repent from their idleness and walk in a manner worthy of their calling. Verse 12 says, Now such person we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. Paul commands these individuals with the same authority that he spoke about at the beginning of this text. Again, he's like, this is not optional, y'all. Like, this is what you're going to get. This is what it is. And he also adds the word encouragement, which is also translated as to exhort or to urge. However, it had a more gentle touch, while at the same time, we don't want anybody to also be like, bro, this guy is just always yelling at us. So it's like, at the same time, he's like, I have every right to yell at you. He's like, at the same time, for those of y'all who don't take that well, I encourage y'all. That's a better word for y'all. To firm command and yet, you know, without having to compromise the urgency of having to address this issue. He wanted to ensure that these brothers who were walking in idleness knew the seriousness and the urgency, while at the same time knowing that this command pertains to them coming back to the Lord more than anything else. This command and encouragement or exhortation was specific and did not lack clarity 
on what it looked like for these brothers to have genuinely repented because it could have been happening. It was happening where they're like, they're literally twisting Paul's words and stuff. And so Paul was very clear on what he says. If you repent, this is what it's gonna look like, brothers, for those who actually repent from their idleness. And he states that he wants them to do their work quietly. What does this mean? The word translated quiet in this case is a sense of restfulness rather than a quiet opposed to talkativeness, meaning to be undisturbed, to be settled, and not noisy. Paul is telling these brothers to go about their work in a manner that isn't disruptive, but engaging in work that makes them settle down, working against the temptation of being a disturbed and unsettled busybody. It's hard to worry or be taken by useless and mindless matters when you're too preoccupied with legitimate labor that requires your effort and your attention. When somebody's trying to like bring you into it, it's like, bro, I, have, I don't have time for that, man. Like, like, you understand the type of day that I just had is like, and you're over here trying to tell me about this brother and this sister who are doing X, Y, and Z. It's like, why don't you go to work? Oh, uh, I actually don't have one. Well, that, that explains a lot. So that is what Paul is saying here. He's like, he wants them to have this type of work that they're not preoc- that preoccupies them, that keeps them settled and undisturbed. Too busy and too, too given to the responsibility of having to provide for themselves and their household that they don't fall into the temptation of doing some of the stuff that was happening, being busybodies. At the same time, he also states that they earn their own living. He wants them to stop depending and placing others responsible for providing for theirs and their family's needs. Why? Because in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, look at what Paul says. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He wants them to take ownership and responsibility for providing their individual household. Expecting others to do so is unloving, selfish, and dishonoring to God. How can you who are able to, literally riding off the backs of the people who you're supposed to be loving, how is that caring? How is that loving? How is that sacrificial? How is that Christ-like? And lastly, Paul moves on to encourage the faithful group of believers to continue in good faith despite these idle brothers. Verse 13 and 15 say, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So the first thing that Paul wants to do is like, hey, Y'all, man, I know y'all been working. I know y'all been carrying some of these guys over here who have not been doing that. But let me tell you, do not grow weary of doing good. We see Paul do this because, again, why? Like, put yourself in the shoes of some of these brothers. (laughs) I mean, imagine what they could have been thinking. Imagine how they could have been feeling about this particular issue. And the sad reality is that this actually happens in churches across, across, across the world. And we see that this type of level of idleness, when not addressed, can lead to division among the church. Or it could even cause fellow believers to fall away or grow a distaste for their call to generosity. Paul tells them, do not grow weary. This word can be translated as do not weary. Do not lose heart. Do not be utterly spiritless. Do not be wearied out. Do not be exhausted. And the word, this word, uh, do not be weary, is used throughout the New Testament, constantly exhorting us to not be discouraged or immobilized in moments like these. Again, Paul knew that something like this could have exhausted people in having the desire and want to continue to do good. In this case, being generous. I mean, like, imagine what we thought. It's like, dude, is this what I'm giving my money to? Is like, Really? Like, have you seen what he's doing? Like, that's what we're providing? I thought we were like doing, I thought there was people, greater people in need. It's like, what's going on? Imagine the type of discouragement, the type of exhaustion, the type of frustration that could have been happening. But Paul wants them to know that they're called to do good. And its source of endurance in doing it comes not from how well others respond to it or how much they get back from it, but rather this call to continue to not grow weary in doing good comes from the love for Jesus and what he has done for us. Take example, 2 Corinthians chapter 
8 verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that through, though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Church, many of us have been so easily discouraged or exhausted from the lack of reciprocation from others, even brothers, that we grow tired of doing good. How quick are we to say, it's like, you know what, man, what's the point of this? You know what, I'm not, I'm not gonna do that anymore. Like all that, all that does is just get me this. It just ends up, I end up just doing more work. I, I mean, I know I do. It's easy. Put yourself in a place where you're the one who's constantly trying to rally individuals to come and help and support for something that's supposed to be their greater cause and then see nobody actually respond to it and say, oh yeah, 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 yeah. And then basically just walk around and just see nobody but yourself. It's pretty discouraging. But yet Paul's saying, no, you don't find your endurance or your, your reason to continue doing good by that, but rather you do it because of what Christ has done for you. When I look at myself or the reciprocation of this goodness, I will find myself as the object of my faith and reliance of it. We shouldn't grow weary in doing good because Christ does not grow tired in doing good for us. He's constantly granting us grace, mercy, forgiveness, and so much more that we deserve. What does this mean, right? Like that we shouldn't be experiencing this, that we shouldn't grow tired or exhausted of doing good when there's brothers who are obviously forcing this type of experience on us? No. Like, it's funny because I picture like Paul, like I, I picture these believers opening up the letter and being like, oh gee, thanks Paul, we gotta continue to put up with this. It's like, all right, I guess I'm not gonna, I can't be tired. No. And I think that's why Paul goes on to address it. It's like, these individuals, like, it's, like, it's funny because like, what, like, should we just put up with it in, in, for the, in the name of Jesus? No, 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 of course not. Paul wants them to do good because of who they are as a people, because of who they are in Christ, because of who they are as a kingdom living amongst one another, you know? And at the same time, to know that when we do experience weariness, we have someone to go to, someone who actually fills our cup, to someone who actually meets our needs, to somebody who actually sustains us in this. So some may say, it's like, so what? We let ourselves be taken advantage of in the name of Christ? No, 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 no. And that's why Paul closes off with this. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of this person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Paul is basically reinforcing what he already had told them at the beginning of this letter. However, he is now explaining to them why he wants them to do this and how they should go about doing it when having to deal with individuals who are refusing to work. As a church community called to love one another, disciplining is not an exemption of that love. This is why Paul is clear as to how they ought to go about it. Some of us, I'm sure, you know, would justify reasons as to why we should be unloving in having to deal with certain discipline, or in this case, be dis emotionally disconnected or vested in how we go about disciplining a brother. However, we must understand that that's not the way we work. We're a people of God. We're in the kingdom of God. And Paul gives them three distinctions on how they ought to go about that. The first one is to take note of this person, meaning they should know and be able to distinguish who are the idlers in the church. It's real easy to then over become an extremist in this thing that anybody who asks for help is, a, is, an, is an idler. It's like, imagine what that would be. Oh, man, no, that's an idler. He's asking me for help. He's saying that, I, I, that, that right now they actually lost their job and all this. That's like... No, 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 Paul's wanting to make sure that they take note of who these people are. Why? Because these individuals could have used the very reason that they were being told to have nothing to do with these people as a reason not to be generous to individuals who could have actually needed the help. This type of extremism can give them justification for a lack of generosity in one's own life. So who are these people? And normally this isn't done out of preference or out of one individual, uh, uh, what's it called, uh, Testimony, no, no, they're addressing the church. Like you as a church come together and say, hey man, who are these people? So that's the first thing, take note of who they are. Second, he says, have nothing to do with them. Here in this can be translated as mingle, associated with. This is similar to the command to keep one's distance. The purpose here is not punitive, but to make the idle person ashamed of what he is doing to bring them to repentance. We as a community church, 
be real easy. It's like, oh man, you want this person to feel shame. It's like, it'd be real easy to really kind of like hone in on that and say, all right, I can definitely make that happen. Like, no, 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 no. We as a community are to never wrongly shame or use language that dismisses or disregards the individual's dignity as a brother and an image bearer. Here, Paul is stating that the hope of removing oneself in association with this person, with these individuals, that they may come to experience shame through the Lord's conviction of their wrongful idleness and mistreatment of the body, causing them to repent. You and disconnecting yourself from them during this time of which they're being disciplined is what's hope to invoke, not saying, hey man, you're straight up a moocher, I can't have nothing to do with you, I don't even wanna talk, like, no, 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 man, it's like, trust me, the, the Lord is good when good enough says, I just move away. Why, because these believers, these, these, these idlers, believe it or not, they were brothers. They're part of the family, nonetheless. Lastly, he warns, he tells them, warn him as a brother, and this verb, to warn him, means to counsel about the avoidance or cessation of the improper course of conduct in their idleness. They were to provide instruction as to, hey, this is what's going to happen if you don't repent. And at the end of the day, this was obviously going to also be addressed through the elders of the, of the church. Because, I mean, again, you're basically kind of doing some mildly shunning here that in hopes that they return back. We as a body have a responsibility to one another. To some degree, when it comes to the care of the church, whether it's us needing to provide for our own needs, or whether us having to call out individuals who are in persistent and unrepented sin that is basically bringing disruption among the people of God. It says this in Matthew 18, five, about to close off here. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Obviously, this particular situation has already escalated beyond the just go tell him by himself, right? It's escalated to the point where the whole church knows. However, nonetheless, the principle and the outcome is the same as here. Our hope for this for stepping away, for not having anything to do with this individual, is in hopes for us gaining our brother. As Christ has called us to himself, we have also been called to those in his body. So we've covered a lot. Hopefully, I did a decent job at that. Um, to sum it up, you know, we've, we've learned a lot in regards to what this idleness was and what was happening and how this literally contradicted the very thing in which they said they believed in. It was obviously selfish. It was, it was literally in a way where they were, in some way or another, willingly rejecting the grace that God had already given them to be able to provide and participate in the generosity. And what we learn is that this type of idleness has no place in the life of those who are part of God's kingdom. This type of lifestyle and unwillingness to provide for yourself or others when able to is a direct rejection of God's grace for you. In addition, we ought to know that as a church have a call to continue to fight against the discouragement, the weariness of doing good in the midst of moments like these. It's real easy to then say, you know what, man, I'm out. But Paul says, no, do not grow weary in doing good, as well as having a responsibility as a church in correcting and addressing persistent, unrepented sin for the sake of the church as a whole and for the sake of that individual's walk with the Lord. Church, our sermon series is called Steadfast. Paul has encouraged and affirmed these believers so that they may remain in all things faithful to Christ by remaining steadfast amid all, amid all these trials that they have been undergoing. Idleness in the church is one of those things that works against us remaining steadfast. So, if you have been, if this is you and you've been walking in a manner that has been, has been in a way where you've seen and treated the church as something to remove you from your personal responsibility for your provision and participation in giving, or you have just seen the church and stuff, maybe you, you're doing a good job in providing for your outside physical needs, but it, here you do nothing to help about the kingdom and the people of God. 
Rather, you just come in and, and you leave and you expect, you take, without any sort of remorse or willingness to want to give, I ask you to repent and turn away from that idleness. The Lord has blessed you richly, that he has purchased you and has given you more than enough in order that you may provide either for your family or for yourself, but as well to participate in the joy of the work that you have been called to in and through your labor. Turn away from the idleness that takes and works against the very people that you're called to love. And for those of you who have been walking in faithfulness, I encourage you to continue and to not grow weary. For the Lord states that in the end, if we endure and don't give up this call, we will be given the crown of life, which is ours in Christ Jesus. And if you are not a Christian, thank you so much for being here with us. You could have been anywhere else, for whatever reason you're here, and I personally ascribe to the fact that that's not a coincidence, right? But I have to tell you that no matter how much work, effort, or even discipline in which you may have and put into your work, you can never work or are you can never come to work enough to gaining God's favor or right standing. The Bible tells us that we all have fallen short of the glory of God, that we have all rebelled and turned away from him. But God in his grace and his love sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live the life that you and I cannot live, die the death that you and I deserved, in order that we may be right with God the Father. So that whoever turns to him in faith in repentance, will be given eternal life and the right standing before God through the work of Jesus Christ in the cross for them. Let us pray. Father God, we just thank you. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy, and your constant love and pursuit of your people. Help us understand, Lord, that our work, our labor, whether in or out of the church, Lord, is not, not ought to be seen as a curse or as an obligation or as something that is just a mere task, but rather maybe something that characterizes us as your people. Help us, Lord, to turn away from idleness and things that we involve ourselves that are mindless, useless, that take that bring about no benefit of our physical needs here on earth or our participation in that of the heavenly ones. Forgive us, Lord, for whom we consider other things far more worthy of our attention and our effort. Forgive us, Lord, if this has been us. And Lord, and for those of us who have been walking faithfully, Lord, in this midst, I ask that you allow us to continue to be sustained by you and not grow tired of doing good know that you, Lord, are with us, that you, Lord, call us to this, and that it will be you, Lord, that you will sustain and provide the strength needed and the grace needed to be able to carry out this calling. I thank you, Lord, and I just ask that you continue to work in the life of your church.